This week on the show, we have an article about the onboard scheduler for the March 2020 rover running FreeBSD, apparently. Practical guide to storage of large amount of microscopy data. OpenBSD guest on Beehive on OmniOS tutorial. And Nextcloud on OpenBSD. MySQL transactions and how they actually work from the physical side. TrueNAS updates. HardenBSD State of the Union announcement for a talk. And more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 394, FreeBSD on Mars, recorded for the 10th of March 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backups for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Yes, Alan is back. So thanks again for Dan to uh, fill in the last two episodes. Uh, I think that was exciting. Yes, thank you. You know, if uh, people have any other guest hosts they'd like to see, we uh, would love to have your ideas. Yeah, so there's a little bit of uh, change here and there, but uh, we have the same format as always, starting with the headlines. And the f- things that we found here is pretty exciting. Uh, this is from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a paper called Prototyping an Onboard Scheduler for the Mars 2020 Rover. Yeah, yeah. Uh... So what's interesting here is you might have heard when the rover landed and so on, there was a bunch of hype about the the little helicopter that the rover carried happened to run Linux. Uh, but the rover runs BSD. The big thing. Yeah. So in the paper, they talk a bit more about um, the hardware and software design and so on. Uh, and in particular, that this uh, the rover runs VxWorks, uh, which basically includes a lot of the original BSD and has been updated over time to use the FreeBSD network stack and various other bits of BSD. Mm, exciting. Indeed. It's uh, not the first BSD thing to be running on another planet or another celestial body, I guess. <laughs> That's a proper uh, determination. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the updates will be a bit difficult to uh, apply over the air, but yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, VxWorks is more of a closer to a real-time type operating system. The idea is it's, it's not quite uh, the same footprint as you would expect a standard FreeBSD install or something. <laughs> yeah, a special uh, purpose. And yes, it was definitely not designed to get random software updates. <laughs> uh, you know, they may actually have to push out a bug fix or something to it at some point. But the idea is that they've spent years testing this software on the ground before sending it into space in the hopes of, ha- of being able to avoid ever having to try to send an update uh, to another planet. Yep. And it's also uh, the network stack from FreeBSD. Well, when you're communicating with the device on another planet, you need the network to be reliable. Yeah, that's true. So why not take the one that does uh, provide you the the stack for it? And it's free, so they don't have to pay any uh, special costs for licensing and stuff. In our next story, we have the practical guide to storage of large amounts of uh, micro, my, microscopy data. So, you know, biological imaging tools continue to increase in speed, scale, and resolution, often resulting in a collection of gigabytes or even terabytes of data from a single experiment. Uh, in comparison, the ability of research laboratories to store and manage this data has lagged greatly. This leads to limits on the collection of valuable data and slows data analysis and research progress. Here we are 
We review some common ways researchers store data and outline the drawbacks and benefits of each method. We also offer a blueprint and budget uh, estimation for the currently deployed data server used to store large amounts uh, from the zebrafish brain activity experiments using light sheet microscopy. Data storage strategy should be carefully considered and different options compared with different imaging experiments. So it will depend slightly on your needs. But uh, the main reason this, this one jumped out at me was that they were looking at using ZFS. Mm -hmm. And so they looked at, you know, if they have a, a main storage server that has 24 bays, will cost about $5,000. And then some uh, a JBOD to add another 45 hard drive bays is about $1,700. Then a 10 gigabit switch, a couple of 10 gigabit network cards, uh, a rack to put the stuff in, a UPS to keep it running, uh, 69 four terabyte hard drives, and a bunch of other accessories. And for about $20,000, they have a 250 terabyte uh, NAS that's resilient and can store their science data. Yeah, that's not your uh, regular hardware shopping list here. So this is a bit more involved. 250 terabyte, not too bad. And it's a ZFS pool. It's one big pool or... Do they write something about that? Uh, yeah, it's just one pool. Okay. It, you know, it defeats the purpose to have multiple pools. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, rate six or what? what's that? Rate that something? Should be. In... Well, you'd have to read the article to fix that. Yeah, it's, it's in here. <laughs> I just try to find the place. Uh, they did a RAID Z1 or uh, a RAID 1 of mirrored for the, the OS drives. And then the, the JBOD is uh, using RAID Z. Oh. So that gives them uh, the resilience they need and the snapshots, of course, at backup. And lots of storage. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, it's a very sciencey episode, I figure. So that's cool to have uh, these. Because you don't read these things normally. So it's nice that people report about how they use uh, BSDs in either science or uh, in some special setups that's not uh, your everyday desktop uh, build. Okay, uh, let's look at the roundup uh, of the news here, uh, because this is um, an article that we found OpenBSD guest with Beehive on OmniOS. So they uh, they walk us through creating an OpenBSD guest via Beehive on OmniOS, and they will add a pass-through Ethernet controller, so they can have multi-homed guests uh, that will serve as a firewall and router. Uh, they look also into OpenBSD's UEFI bootloader, so they uh, seem to have some trouble there or if you have then here is the solution and of course the first thing is uh, they install a beehive so on OmniOS they uh, that's in a separate category I would I would say that's called brand so it's brand slash beehive and after that it's installed that's all you need and that's special if you are on FreeBSD then beehive is is there you probably need to add some of the EFI loading components from the packages but in general uh, beehive is in the base operating system on freebsd so this is OmniOS here that's a bit uh, different but nevertheless the same um, then they create a zone so every zone on a system has at least one dedicated zfs data set and it's good practice to create a parent data set under where all the other zones will live and they say that a common convention is to mount this data set as slash zones and create it at the top level of a pool but you can name it any anything you like 
Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> just the name. Uh, you do a zpool create uh, the data. In this case, it's one uh, disk partition, it seems, or one disk even. They have a different naming scheme for the disks. But um, nevertheless, you have a pool at the end that's called data. And once this pool exists, you can create a top-level data set using ZFS create and mount that on slash zones. And it's showing up in ZFS list, of course. Then it's time to set up the OpenBSD boot disk uh, by fetching that from the uh, cdn.openbsd.org. And that's uh, version 6.7, uh, the mini root. And then you create a uh, block device from uh, uh, to boot from. This is Lofi ADM uh, slash zone slash ISO slash mini root that we just downloaded and to uh, dev slash lofi slash one. So that's uh, mounted there or loop backed. Then we create a virtual NIC interface and uh, look where that has been created. Ah, okay. So we create a virtual network interface or virtual switch uh, and that we can then use for the virtual machines in Beehive. Uh, we do then the pass through. There's a command called prtconf slash lowercase d, uppercase d, and that shows us the connected net network cards. And once we have the name, then we can uh, create a uh, an entry into etc ppt underscore aliases. So this is all OmniOS specific, but uh, this basically makes the NIC available. Uh, the rest is just creating a ZFS dataset to store the boot disk for the guest. So that's each uh, machine having its own dataset. And then you create uh, the OpenBSD Beehive zone using zone config. Uh, it's all nicely described here with uh, the commands that you need to enter as well as some uh, output when needed. Uh, once that is done, you can create the OpenBSD zone and install it. And then once the install is done, you can boot that and then log into the console. And then you are there in your freshly installed system. Yeah, and the bootloader thing that we mentioned at the beginning uh, is also described at the bottom. If you're having problems booting there, then you uh, get the descriptions what you need to do to make it work with UEFI. Yeah, cool. Pretty straightforward. Sticking to the topic of OpenBSD, we have Nextcloud uh, on OpenBSD. And this uh, blog post over at heartbleed.nl <laughs> uh, says Nextcloud and OpenBSD are complementary to one another. Nextcloud is an awesome, secure, and private alternative to proprietary platforms, whereas OpenBSD forms the most secure and solid foundation to serve it all from. Uh, setting it up is in the best way isn't hard, especially using uh, this step-by-step -step tutorial. So for a preface, uh, back when this tutorial was originally written, things were a bit different. OpenBSD had PHP version 5.6, and there were no updates available, but now things are newer and you can get a newer version. So a, a rewrite of this tutorial was long overdue. Uh, right now is written for OpenBSD 6.6 and will be updated once 6.7 is released, which I think was a little while ago, but uh, this looks like it was posted this week. Anyway, anyway, first you want to install OpenBSD, which is fairly simple to do. After installing OpenBSD, they add some extra flags to their FS tab and disabling the last access time flag on every file so that you're not doing a bunch of extra writing for no reason and enabling soft depths to increase the performance. Then they download a bunch of example config files and install those and install some packages, including uh, Nextcloud and the Postgres SQL server, the uh, PHP Postgres adapter, the Redis adapter and Redis itself. Then once that's set up, they get PHP 7.3 going, get their database stood up, you know, after installing Postgres, it's mostly a matter of running the initdb command to uh, initialize the Postgres database and get that started and running uh, using rcctl to enable it and start it. 
then creating a database called Nextcloud and setting up uh, an encrypted password for it and granting privileges. Then uh, once you get your PHP config set up, you know, set your maximum execution time, your memory limit, and enable the opcode cache for more performance. You can enable and start PHP 7.3 FPM, uh, which basically is the fast CGI process manager for PHP. So it'll listen on a port or a socket and, and run the PHP scripts for you. Then you want to enable and start Redis so that the, you have uh, that database as well. Uh, and then uh, setting up the SSL config for, I think they're using Let's Encrypt. Uh, and then setting up the HTTPD and that config. And then lastly, setting up Nextcloud, which is mostly adding the can underscore install file to the directory. And then you can point your browser at Nextcloud uh, and configure it with the web UI. Once that's done, it's just a matter of adding a cron tab entry to run the Nextcloud cron so that any actions that need to happen in the background when nobody's on the Nextcloud website can still happen. And then you're good to go. Mm -hmm. You now have Nextcloud running on OpenBSD. The instructions you're doing the same on FreeBSD would be quite similar, just a matter of switching out, you know, package underscore add for PKG install and, you know, the RCCTL for sysrc and, and service whatever start. Yeah, so that can be applied to uh, other Unixes or other BSDs. So this tutorial used uh, Postgres. The next article is about MySQL. And it's talking about more about MySQL transactions, the physical side, what it's uh, doing while you're doing your commits or your changes in the database. Uh, it's Christian Kern. Yeah, talk. like if you've ever wondered, you know, how, why you want to tune ZFS in specific ways for your SQL database, this kind of explains some of what's happening between the database and the disk. Yeah, so uh, they create a test table and write uh, random data to it, uh, random bytes, uh, and uh, starting a transaction, of course, because that's then done in an atomic way. Um, so this is running on a Linux machine, but you can basically um, do the same, same the same things on BSDs. It's the same concept, the same database. They are using the InnoDB use underscore native underscore AIO to false because the observing uh, of the physical asynchronous AO, IO and attributing it to the statements that caused it to be really hard. So that option is um, better. Yeah, so rather than doing asynchronous IO in the background where it just says, hey, go do this IO and tell me when you're done, we make it normal synchronous uh, so that we can see which transaction is causing which writes and so on. Yeah, and then they have a little uh, diagram that shows how it works internally with the checkpoints and the commits and the redo log files because each time you write to a database, it's first written to the log file in case uh, someone trips over the power cord. And then you can still re, uh, get your <laughs> database uh, changes uh, back from the redo log. Uh, so the, this illustrates basically how it's uh, done and the writing is done in the, in the undo log and from the buffer pool, the page data into the logs first and then to the actual database. So they also say that InnoDB is an MVCC engine, which is multi-version or multi-value concurrency control. This is a whole bigger topic, they say, and it is in databases. It's a typical exam question. I've uh, been there, done that. But um, for our purposes, this is important to know because uh, the database moves the, the data from one state into another, which is always consistent this way. Okay, so when you start a transaction, 
using the start transaction, read write. The database takes note of the current transaction number. It does not do much else until you actually write things. So this is still within the transaction block. And there are other ways, of course, uh, to start a transaction with begin, begin work, set auto commit. But if you don't want to type that much, use begin. Uh, <laughs> that's just personal preference. Okay, so then uh, once you start the transaction, you can do all kinds of changes. In this case, they insert random data to our test table and uh, it writes a null to an auto increment field to get a new counter value. So this is, uh, I guess, monotonically increasing, if I'm not mistaken, yep. And then generate uh, 255 random bytes of data to be written into a table so that you have some data to work with. Uh, then the transaction builds up in memory uh, like, um, you know, like in a, in a balloon until uh, it, <laughs> it pops or is released. A log buffer is then allocated and filled with data step by step until the log buffer overflows or the transaction commits. And then the second thing is the data being overwritten needs to be saved in order to have it around for a rollback in case this is needed. And uh, or an update, a delete or an insert statement is happening as well. Well, I mean, if you're doing an update or a delete, you need to worry about the old values. Whereas with an insert, you're just adding new values so you don't have to worry right. about the old. Yeah, so that's the thing. And then um, the row being overwritten is then moved out of the table and moved into the undo log uh, for, an, this is a purely in-memory operation and copying data from one page to another. And a linked list is being built from the new current version to the row of this older previous version to the uh, current row. Okay, so when you then uh, provide the commit statement, on the commit, the log buffer is being written to disk as a kind of binary diff to the original unchanged database from the table space. And the undo log space could be freed at this point, from the point of view of this transaction at least, because once committed, it can no longer be changed except by a second transaction. So this is the atomic nature. Right, and then if you were to do a rollback instead, uh, MySQL would move the data back from the undo page to the table space and throw away your new thing instead. And this is a comparatively slow operation because MySQL is set up and you know biased towards you're going to commit each transaction, not do it and then change your mind. Yeah, and then they demonstrate this a little bit with uh, LSOF. Isn't there also a dtrace? Uh are dtrace probes in mysql to trace all these uh transactions um i think there might be some user space dtrace stuff i've not actually used it in mysql but yeah this is um a one way to to trace those so uh figuring out what is happening on the disk and what kind of writes are done or reads or syncs oh yeah and at the bottom they also provide a little bit of an uh, a chart how the the changes are happening in the uh, undo log Ah, nice article. So that's a good way of showing behind the scenes what's happening when a database is doing a commit. Yeah. So it says, you know, at the end, MySQL takes care when writing data to disk. As long as the physical media is undamaged, it will try not to lose the data. It basically relies on the file system uh, being believed. You know, when, when MySQL asks the file system, hey, write this and don't come back until it's done, MySQL has to assume that you're not lying to it when you come back. And so by default, ZFS will do that it will take its time it'll make sure hey this got to be written out properly to the zill and then uh flushed out as well so that if the power loss then when zfs rolls back the incomplete transaction it will then replay the specific rights mysql had asked about uh so that you know if it promised that data would remain zfs will make sure that data will remain now you can uh set sync equals disabled to make zfs lie and it will make your database faster except for it will 
cause great consternation to MySQL when it said, you promised that data wouldn't disappear. After the crash, it would disappear. What do you want me to do? Mm. How can I serve you now? How can I give you the data that you want? Yeah. But you can also end up running into things where uh, some database engines will try to, you know, are already doing like a double write and so on to make sure it's protected against the file system losing it when ZFS already does that for you. So there's quite a bit of tuning you can do on both the side of the database to say, hey, you don't need to write it out, sync it to the temp file and then write it to the actual file so that you can, you know, deal with undoing because we're ZFS, you know, ZFS will make sure that if you don't actually commit this transaction, the old version of that block will still exist. Whereas uh, on an overwriting file system, you might have already overwritten half of that block. Mm. Uh, and you end up with this kind of half and half block that's doesn't contain the right value. Whereas with ZFS, you will either get that write completed or that write didn't complete. Uh, and so there's some tuning you can do on the database engine side as well in order to make it not do extra work that ZFS makes uh, unnecessary. Yep. So that's good to be aware of. And uh, we also have a new release of TrueNAS. It's 12.0-U2.1. And what's uh, this? This is an update, I would figure. Yeah, uh, the U stands for Yeah, yeah, but uh, like a minor one, not a, not a big uh, uh, major release or something. Yeah, uh, it fixes three bugs. Uh, an issue where you had trouble joining Active Directory domains, suppressing some extraneous core file alerts, and using the correct verbiage when you're applying pending updates uh, on a high availability system. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, and there's also known issues like persistent L2ARC is disabled by default. And they show how you... Yes, you have to opt into that for now uh, because it was causing some problems and it was easier to leave it deactivated until things are more clear there. Mm -hmm. uh, they also note that the TrueNAS root user can't be an SMB user, uh, but that's for your own mm -hmm. sake. Security, yeah. Okay, but it's, yeah, if you are uh, in uh, on TrueNAS, uh, make sure that you get the latest versions to not be bothered by these uh, issues too much and uh, work around them. All right. And last but not least in this segment, we have the Harden BSD State of the Union. Uh, this is the nice buck talk. Yep, this will be April 7th at 6.45 Eastern Standard Time or Daylight Time. It'll be after DST by then. But anyway, at 6.45 uh, on the uh, their online meeting. Yeah, they will stream that talk. and uh... Yeah, so it'll be a Google meeting. Uh, and so you can email rsvp at lists.nycbug.org and uh, they will get you invited to attend. Yep, so we're interested in what's happening in uh, Harden BSD uh, of late or what their uh, focus is, then uh, definitely tune into this presentation. I'm fairly sure that they will have it recorded and later available if you can't make that time. So that's good. That's a nice buck uh, meeting or virtual meeting. And we found a beastie bit for you, which is interesting because we have a new FreeBSD journal issue about case studies from various uh, companies, organizations, how they use FreeBSD internally, in-house. Uh, one is Tarsnap, your tried and true sponsor and backup solution, and Netflix and Bally Wolf. So these three different companies, very different, but all have... Uh, good use case for FreeBSD, and that is one uh, of the focuses in this uh, edition. It's a free uh, journal uh, and has been for over a year now, 
So uh, definitely get it. And you can also see the editorial calendar, what kind of issues we will uh, publish this year. Um, so get excited about some of these. So security desktop, FreeBSD 13 coming up. That's the next one. Uh, cloud and embedded IoT. Yeah, there's a good overview of the architecture of the Tarsnap uh, cloud stuff, if you've ever been interested in what that is. That gives us a little bit of a behind the scenes uh, look uh, what Tarsnap is doing as a company or how it's using FreeBSD. Uh, so that's uh, interesting to read. Yep. Uh, and if you've ever wondered, you know, I've heard that Netflix uses AWS, uh, but how does that fit with the fact that they use FreeBSD and that all their AWS instances aren't FreeBSD in it? They have a nice diagram that fits it all together and talks about how and why they use FreeBSD. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's always good to uh, not get information like uh, on, a con on a conference about how companies use FreeBSD, but also like in a in a case study. But there's also a couple of testimonials and white papers on the FreeBSD Foundation's website. So there's plenty of interesting use cases for uh, FreeBSD in a uh, yeah company environment or in the industry. Cool. So this brings us actually to our sponsor uh, this week, uh, which is Tarsnap. So Tarsnap, if you haven't heard about it, before, then you definitely are missing out on Tarsnap services, which is giving you a online backup that is encrypted and it's encrypted before it leaves your disk. So there's not uh, some magical key on the you know provider server that can unencrypt your data that you don't know about. So this is your key. You have the keys to the castle. If you lose the key, not even the Tarsnap people can get your data back. Yep. Uh, you know. There's nothing like uh, a major disaster to remind you to make your backups. Uh, so as we record this, uh, the morning we're recording this, a pair of major data centers uh, in France uh, burned to the ground, taking all the servers mm -hmm. with them. Uh, and a lot of people are like, boy, I wish I had done a backup somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't be like those people. Uh, hook up your Tarsnap and get your important data backed up yesterday. And it's not... It doesn't have to be expensive to have a backup. Yes, uh, and it doesn't have to be difficult. You know, if you have used the tar command before, you can use tarsnap. Exactly, yeah. Put it in a cron job, let it run periodically, every hour, every every minute, every day, whatever you like, because only the, the delta that has changed since the last time you backed up is copied into your backed up uh, data storage and uh, only the unique blocks. So that's a special algorithm they employ. You don't have to... Uh, look into that too deeply, but it's all explained on the Tarsnap website if you're interested in that. And it's compressed as well. Yep. So it does all the segmenting to get the smallest diff possible and the deduplication of the blocks uh, on your machine. Then it will compress those and encrypt them, sign them, and send them up to the cloud. Uh, and because of the way that works, the key used for the encryption and signature never leaves your machine. Uh, and so no one uh, you can be sure that the data that's being stored in the cloud can only be accessed by people with that key. And that should only be you and whoever else you give it to. Mm -hmm. And for the paranoid people among us, you can look at the source code and figure out if there are any backdoors or special hacks they did, but there aren't any. All right, so uh, it's time for the feedback and questions as always. Uh, we love getting feedback from you and questions because this segment would be very empty if we didn't. Uh, so send all uh, things that's uh, on your mind, BSD related or about the show to feedback at bsdnow.tv. The first one is about BusyNAS 
and goes like this. Uh, Dear Alan Benedict, I've eagerly listened to BSD Now starting from episode one. Ah, great. Uh, long time listener. Uh, ever since I learned of the data healing property of ZFS from your show, I've wanted to deploy it in a NAS. Recently, I successfully repurposed the desktop system into a FreeBSD-based NAS. Installation was easy following the handbook, and it works fine and has a UFS root with Galley encrypted mirror. Ah, see. Okay, one evening, while working on my main desktop system, the idling NAS became busy. A brief view of output from the top utility listed the find command as the main source of activity, and also zip, among others. Does ZFS normally engage find and zip from time to time? ZFS doesn't, but FreeBSD does. And I'm guessing it was bzip, not zip. But um, so the periodic subsystem in FreeBSD will run the find command as part of the daily security report. And it will search your system for any files with the set UID bit and compare that to the list from yesterday and send you send emails root a report every morning saying, if there are any, here are the new files that suddenly have set UID set, which might be a security concern for you. Um, so you can either in etcperiodic.conf, uh, you can disable some of those checks that you don't want, uh, or you can use the uh, set the ZFS property, uh, no set UID or no exec on the data sets that you don't want it to scan. And it will, uh, the periodic script will know not to scan things that don't scan for set UID or exec on things that have the property no exec or no set UID. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the zipping was probably log rotation. Uh, so the new syslog thing runs, uh, and when a log file gets too big, it will rotate it and then compress the old one. Uh, and that will cause bzip or xzip or, or something like that to end up running for a little while as it compresses that log file. Yeah, if you don't want that, you can edit your uh, newsyslog.conf and remove the j at the last column. That will cause it to not bzip because ZFS compress it, compresses it much better and much higher. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, LZ4 won't compress as good as xzip, but uh, decompressing it from ZFS and recompressing it with xzip is not going to save that much space and is probably not worth the effort. Mm. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a basic uh, FreeBSD maintenance running in the background, but you can disable it if you don't need that. And you don't need to... Uh, oh, yeah, he continued writing as precaution when the NAS was suddenly chattering away. I shut it down as well as a nearby Windows desktop. What should I uh, examine next? So this is um, the periodic scripts. And Yeah, so the biggest thing is I would have used PS and got more of the command to see what the fine command... Um, or in top, if you press lowercase a, it will show the whole command line. Although if it was really long, it might get truncated anyway. Uh, but using ps or top dash a to get more information. So what is it using find on? And if it's searching for the set UID stuff, then that'll be obvious from the command line. Or if uh, you know if it's bzip on var log something dot log. Uh, then yeah, that's probably normal. But if it's something else, then maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, he plans to upgrade the NAS SSH session authentication from password to public key. Yes, always good so that no one, if, I mean, this is not uh, sitting on the internet, but uh, SSH keys are much nicer and way better to uh, secure a system if, if it's on the uh, evil internet or on other networks where other people try to guess passwords. Cool, but yeah, uh, this is a good start on your own little NAS on free BSD and ZFS. Um, yeah, happy happy data saving, and uh, yeah, hopefully you will never have a crash that uh, you will uh, 
worry about that your files are gone. Mm -hmm. ZFS, you're all set. Okay, the next uh, question we got is from Jeff about ZFS and NFS on FreeBSD. And Jeff writes, Hi, Benedict, Alan, and JT. Thanks, as always, for the show. Glad you are listening. Um, I always learn something new, and it encouraged me to keep broadening my BSD skills. Ah, see, we got uh, you engaged here, uh, and probably many others as well. So his current project is deploying an application to a jail using CBSD. Uh, I was originally wanting to mount an NFS share from the FreeBSD 12.2 NAS host that he has into the jail via NullFS. Mounting the NFS share and exposing it to the jail from the jail host worked fine, but it was at the point he discovered write performance over the NFS share was only about 50 megabytes per second, both from the jail mount point and the jail host mount point. Hmm. Not uh, expecting to outperform the SATA disk backing the share, but even 1 gigabytes per second line speed should be providing almost twice the throughput. As a comparison, copying the Samba on the same machine in Zpool gives about 90 megabytes per second throughput. And some Googling revealed generally that there is a bad performance, quote unquote, when writing to a ZFS file system shared out via NFS due to the way that NFS writes data on top of ZFS. However, nearly all the information I found was at least four or five years old. Yeah, there has been happening something in the meantime. The best solution seems to be to add an SSH slog. I'm wondering if you guys have any advice for optimizing NFS ZFS performance. He's open to adding a slog device uh, to simply writing a local disk and using ZFS replace to bulk storage. But if there are any tips we can uh, apply in the interim or in conjunction with a slog, it uh, would be very appreciated. So I think the first thing to do is check ZFS or sorry, NFS stat D on the host where it's on the, the NFS server and see what's happening there. Um, another thing to try is if like you're writing to one file and getting 50 megabytes a second, if you write to two files at the same time, do you get basically a hundred total or do you get 25 each for 50 total? Uh, cause it might be related to just the number of threads and the, the latency, uh, being different. Um, the best way to tell if a slog would help is on the ZFS data set that you're sharing via NFS, the one that's slow temporarily do ZFS set sync equals disabled on the data set. Uh, and this way it will um, basically ignore the synchronous write requests, right, which normally is what you would use the slog to accelerate to make the synchronous write request faster by treating them as asynchronous and just buffering them to memory and not providing the data guarantee. If that solves the performance problem, then you can look at uh, whether it makes sense to add a slog or to change your NFS client uh, to not be as aggressive about using uh, sync or f-sync or whatever to to flush the data to the other side um, as it's doing it. Like if you're copying one large file, there should only be a sync at the end. It shouldn't be doing it constantly. And so you should be able to get the higher throughput. Now, if you're using something like rsync or something and you're copying lots of little files, then that's kind of a different story. Mm. Uh, but make sure you do ZFS inherit sync to restore the sync back to the default. Uh, on that data set after you're done with your little experiment because you probably don't want it uh, to be lying about whether it's syncing or not uh, over the long term. Yeah, and it's good to check the date on blog posts that you find because it might uh, be outdated. Uh, the yeah, information. But, you know, NFS is NFS mostly still. Yeah, but uh, wasn't there a big uh, rewrite for NFS v4? Well, uh, but in general, the most of that advice about NFS performance has to do with 
some NFS clients, like specifically VMware's uh, NFS client, turn every write into a synchronous write rather than only ones where the application requested it. And that uh, is where you normally see a much bigger difference in that performance because you know turning every write into a synchronous write means a lot more work for ZFS. Okay, I uh, hope that helps already. And if not, maybe some of our listeners has other suggestions and helpful tips. Uh, okay, so thanks, Jeff, and uh, glad you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, last but not least is Michael with a remote unlock for encrypted systems question. Oh, this seems like a, <laughs> I have a problem, I need to get to my system. Um, okay, so here it goes. Hi, guys. I just recently discovered your awesome podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I uh, found it because I started getting into ZFS and enjoyed some of Alan's conference talks and books. I find Alan very calming and pleasant to listen to, and Benedict is a wonderful host. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been described as calming before. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a quality. Um, okay, so my question is as uh, old as time. Is the chicken and the egg meets having you, oh, having your cake and eating it? How can I have my system encrypted at rest and still do remote maintenance? Problem is unlocking the disk before booting from them. How do you enter a passphrase during early boot without a keyboard or SSH access? Data centers offer all sorts of solutions to this, but it gets tricky with a basement home server. One way is to attach additional hardware to the server and give you low-level control, like a serial console controller or KVM over IP solutions, with a couple of links provided to those. Um, they are either very expensive or they require finicky niche hardware like special cables, adapters, and controller boards. Another way is to load some... Uh, it depends. If if your hardware happens to have a hardware serial port, then usually you can get a USB to serial adapter that you can plug into some second system. As long as only one of your machines is going down at once, if you cross-connect them that way, then machine B can always be the serial console for machine A and vice versa and not need to need a, a dedicated device. Although, uh, if you know it's something like the power went out while I was uh, away from home and I need to get all the machines back online having something dedicated that boots up by itself is, is a little nicer oh yeah yeah oh yeah i hadn't thought about the crossover solution yeah um yeah he writes another way is to load some minimal system with sshd to allow unlocking your actual main system uh it has been done apparently with a link to an article with a near naked kernel and a custom compiled minimal ssh server i'm working on scripts to accomplish the same with more vanilla components an unencrypted FreeBSD-based system, the outer base, would let you in via SSHD and allow you to unlock your drives and pools before using reboot-r to reboot into your encrypted main system, the inner base. The biggest problem with the inner outer base type setup like that is when it comes time to upgrade the kernel and the user land is having to make sure you update both in sync and the fact that it doesn't really work with boot environments very nicely. Mm, yeah, could be a problem. Uh, until we get a medical, magical UEFI bootloader with SSHD capabilities, this seems to be the best compromise to me. I'm still unsure how to integrate tools like BEADM or BECTL with a setup, however. I'm curious what you think or how you've solved this problem before. Yeah, so BEADM or BECTL is going to be very difficult when you have this separate file system with a, a different kernel in it, and you need to try to keep the two in sync. Starting with FreeBSD 13, which should be pretty close to out by the time this airs, you have support for ZFS native encryption, which gives you the option of not encrypting your root file system, but encrypting the things uh, other than that that you care about, like say your home directory or you know the directory where your database is or whatever, so that you can boot and have you know your kernel isn't uh, encrypted, and you, so you can boot and get SSH up, but 
any applications that need access to the sensitive data have to wait for someone to SSH in and mount the um, uh, provide the encryption key to mount that data. Another thing that that version of ZFS has is support for fetching the keys via like HTTPS. Mm. So you can actually build some kind of service around this so that your machine on boot up will reach out to a web service over HTTPS and say, hey, I need to unlock this data set. And then that service could do something like uh, a push notification to your phone being like, hey, this server wants to access this decryption key. Do you want to allow it? And you can just say yes. Or, uh, you know, it can be some kind of key management server that knows whether or not that machine's allowed to do that. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, so you can actually come up with ways of, of automating access to to the encryption keys. So there's a lot of advantages to that. You know, at one point I looked at, or I had made it so that the prompt from GBD ZFS boot for like non-EFI booting would print the password prompt to the serial console, but it posed a problem of machines that didn't have a serial console would then hang waiting for the rights to the serial console. Uh, and so that feature had to be turned back off. Um, but you can... If if you have access to some kind of KVM over IP or serial over LAN or just a serial port, you can compile GPT ZFS boot with a small patch to make it print the password prompt over serial so that you could decrypt it. But, you know, depending what the server is, it's generally really annoying to have the server just be offline until somebody can type in that password. Uh, and so that's why I bias much more towards the solution of the operating system itself doesn't need to be encrypted. It's just a copy of FreeBSD. You know, maybe my database server can't start until somebody provides the encryption key, but at least some of the system can get up and, and provide access. The other nice thing about that type of ZFS encryption is, like you said, all of this encryption only provides uh, protection to your data when it's at rest, right? That means only when the server's powered off, generally, right? Uh, and when is your server powered off? Not ever really so uh it's not really providing protection very often because you know when the data is mounted or when the encryption key is loaded then you know if somebody compromises the server they can read the data whether it was encrypted or not so the nice thing about zfs's way of doing it is each data set can have a different key and those keys can be loaded and unloaded as you need so uh if you don't need access to some of that data for a while you can you know zfs uh unload key or whatever i think i forget the command is i think it's unload dash key on the data set and that will unmount that data set and get rid of the key from memory and that data set won't be usable again until somebody comes along and does zfs load key and provides the password or the the key file or whatever it is that is your key material but the important thing is zfs is still able to do scrub and resilver and things like that on that data without needing to know the encryption key because the checksum is split in half uh, part of it is the checksum of the encrypted version and part is the checksum of the plain text version. That's clever. And all ZFS needs is the encrypted version to tell that the, the data on disk is correct or to rebuild it for RAID Z or whatever. And then it's only when you actually decrypt the data that it checks the checksum of the plain text to make sure that your data is actually correct. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's, not a <laughs> it's a it's a Mac of the plain text. Yeah. When you when it's encrypted, the the half of the checksum that's of the plain text is actually a Mac. So it verifies not only that the data is right, but that it hasn't been modified unexpectedly. Mm, nice. I, I now want FreeBSD 13 sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, you know, you only have a couple of weeks to wait, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so hopefully that helps you with your uh, remote unlocking. And um, yeah, this is the end of this episode. Thank you for listening as always. Uh, find us on 
bsdnow.tv or uh, twitch.tv slash bsdnow or twitter.com slash bsdnow. And uh, we will be back next week with another episode for you. Yep, don't forget to send your questions to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Bye.